I'm sitting in the, in the press box next to Shannon, and I, you know, I said to her, listen, I don't know what's gonna happen, but I just got the feeling that Mike is gonna do something big. I don't want to predict a home run. Sure enough, he had a home run over the left field fence, and for the first time in 10 days, you know, people laughed, there were firemen, the kids laughing, policemen, the kids laughing, and it, put, it was a home run that really helped unify the city. I mean, it was, you know, Mike, Mike has hit well over 400 home runs, and, you know, he values that home run as probably the best home run he's ever hit. My guest today is Jay Horowitz. Jay is the current Vice President of Media Relations for the New York Mets. As the beloved longtime PR director for the New York Mets for close to 40 years, he has witnessed and quietly shaped some of the most memorable moments in team history. Jay's also a trusted friend and mentor to generations of players from Daryl Strawberry to Jacob DeGrom. Jay recently wrote his memoirs titled, Mr. Met, How a Sports Made Kid from Jersey became like family to generations of big leaguers. I recently sat down with Jay and we talked about his difficult childhood and the message he wanted to share with kids who were born with a disability. Jay, thanks so much for coming on the show. I want to tell you, I've been a big fan of yours since I think it was 1981 when it was a Friday, it was a rain delay evening, uh, we were all around and we were watching you being interviewed. I think you were just one or two years into the job as PR for the Mets. And I, I tell you, it was so, it was, it was so great because you were so enthused and so happy. And you look like a kid who just basically won, who just owned the candy store. Yeah, I was with Steve Albert, Barb's brother in Pittsburgh. It was a rain delay. And he put me on for a long time. And um, we had some fun reminiscing about my fairly tickets days. Well, I couldn't have been the only one that loved that interview, right? That that had I appreciate it. That must have been that must have you know old Jay Harwood's fans really must. Well, uh, thank you very much. Over there. All right, the, the, your book, Mister Met. I read this in one sitting. It's it's a really fast read. It's about your life with the Mets uh, as a PR person. How a sports made kid from New Jersey became like family to generations of big leaguers. Now, before we get into the book. I think what really got me was all the way in the back, you talk about the reason you wrote this book, and I think it's so important. Jay, could you just share that with us? Well, there were really two reasons why I wrote the book. One was to, to uh, pay tribute to my uh, assistant for 22 years, Shannon Ford, courageous woman, passed away at the age of 44 with breast cancer, left two young kids. Um, it, it just balanced her job and work and family and and right work right up into the end she willed herself to go to the 2015 world series all the players loved her the media loved her the front office loved her she you know she was just just really bled orange and blue for the mets and and when when shannon was hired when i hired her women in pr or sports pr were really an anomaly and shannon wasn't afraid to to, to, to go to the top players, ask them to do things. She wasn't intimidated by the locker room. And I just felt it was important. You know, and then she passed away uh, after a five-year battle with cancer in March of 2016. And I just felt it was important for people, you know, to remember her, her legacy. Another day I wrote the book, I was, uh, I was born with one eye. When my mother carried me, uh, she had uh, German measles. I was born with glaucoma. I was born with one green eye, one blue eye. When I was about 13, 
the infection spread to my other eyes. I had to have my eye taken out. I had an artificial eye, right eye. And, uh, you know, I was ridiculed as a kid, you know, made fun of because of the way I looked. And, um, you know, I just felt up until about maybe a year ago, maybe three years ago, rather, you know, I used to watch the, the games for the press with binoculars because I couldn't see that well. And I always used to alibi and say, well, you know, I have no sight in my eye. I can see a little bit. I can see light. And finally, I said, this is why don't I just admit what I have? And maybe I could be an example to a youngster, a young person born with a disformity that he can make something of my life, their, their lives. That's what I try to get the message. You don't have to be perfect to, to get ahead. You can, you know, be, even if you're born not perfectly, you can still do things for your life. And hopefully that's one of the things that people got from my book. So growing up, this you know, before you had your operation, you had one green eye and one blue eye. Right. And kids would make fun of you? I was born, I, mean, I was born, I had, I had no sight in my right eye because I had glaucoma. I really had film over my eye. And, uh, you know, I just had no sight in the eye. And I didn't, when I had the artificial eye put in, I never, you know, when I got to work for the Mets, it wasn't until four or five years ago that I told a few people that I had an artificial right eye. I was just too embarrassed to say something. And whatever it was, I just, maybe I would kind of come clean in the book that maybe I could help some people. And, 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 you know, growing up, it's, it's so amazing. You're a man 70-plus years old now. Right, 76. 76. God should grant you a long, long life to 120. And, um, you know, that's something which uh, it, it never ceases to amaze me, is no matter how old we get, those hurts from words that we get as kids stick with us for the rest of our lives. Yeah, no question. No, I remember. And kids could be cruel, you know. And I had a sixth grade teacher in, in school, Miss Joyce Essling, who was very kind to me. She told me not to mind the other kids. She would come home and tutor me and, you know, like get me through my the ordeals. And she was, I owe a lot to her to keep me on the straight and narrow when I was a youngster. Wow. You know, it's those little things that make all the difference. You know, someone took right. an interest of you. That's just amazing. And, you know, you, before we get more into the book and your Mets, your parents were extremely supportive of you in this, right? They They were... Uh, from reading the book, it seemed there were super parents and, and how they supported you. Yeah, my mom and dad were big sports fans. Uh, my father was a gigantic uh, Willie Mays fan, a Giants fan. He went for the football Giants. When the uh, Giants left to go to California, he took me to uh, uh, the Philadelphia to see them play. And, you know, I inherited my love for sports from my parents. And uh, one regret I have, my, my father died in 19... Uh, 71 and he never got the chance to see me work for the Mets. I saw he would have had a big thrill that I got to work for a professional baseball team. Would have been a lot, a lot to him. My mother actually came to the uh, 1996 World Series, so she was there when we beat the Red Sox, and uh, you know I was that made me very happy that she got to, got to see that. Oh wow! Was she at the game with Mookie Wilson? When the Bulls she, she was in Game Six and Game Seven. Oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! All right. Uh, I don't want to hog this up with reminiscing about the New York Mets and, and you know, because our family has been a New York Mets fan, I think, since we were born. Because my mother was a Brooklyn Dodger fan. And for those who don't know that when the Brooklyn Dodgers left, there was a big void in in Brooklyn. So uh, the fans who were Brooklyn Dodgers, you hated everyone. Either hate, you hated the Yankees. People lived in the Bronx and up more out of the city were New York Giant fans. And it left a hole until... Uh, Mrs. Joan Payson and Bill Shea started a team, right? Right. They came, the Mets came to be in 1962, and uh, 
you know, they got through the Polo Ground, Shea Stadium, and nice now City Field. Yeah, and they were not a good team. They were just a horrible team. <laughs> Well, 1969 were a pretty good team. 1969, wow. Yeah, 1969, 73, right. 86. Okay, but forget that. Let, let's let's go this. You, I want to skip over your fairly Dickinson days and get up. I want to put it into the, just because I, I have so many things I want to ask you about. Because growing up in New York, it is, it, it is, first of all, it's, everything's under a microscope if you're a, if you're a, if you're a ball player. Right, everything. It's not like you work. You playing in Cincinnati or Montreal. New York is extremely difficult for any sports, any 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 team, especially if you're a superstar to play in New York. Right? Agreed. Yeah, no question. No, no question, question about that. Okay. Now, you're you become uh, PR for the Mets. It was eighty or 81? 80? 1980. 1980. April first, nineteen eighty. Okay. The Mets folks were not good. They weren't good in the eighties. I remember going in the late 70s to Shea Stadium because that's where I was. I used to bring my glove. And my kids asked me when I was a kid, well, why did you bring your glove to Shea Stadium when you were a kid, even though we sat in the bleachers? I said there was so – and I meant this seriously when I was like 7 or 10 or 15 or so, even maybe up to 12 years old. I realized there were so few people that if they needed someone to play first base, if one of the players got hurt, maybe they'd call someone out of the stands. But there were so few people. And the announcers go, if Today's attendance is 5,648. There was no way. <laughs> they must have counted everyone four times. If Shea right. Stadium hit, hit like, what, 50-plus thousand people capacity? 55,000. And, and they must have been back in the day, 1,500, 1,600, 2,000 yeah. people. It was really sad. Okay, you get this dream job of being PR for the New York Mets. America's team at the time is they get the front page everywhere with the New York Yankees, especially with George Steinbrenner and Billy Martin. George Steinbrenner, the owner of the of the um, of the Yankees, Billy Martin, contentious throughout the set. Whenever he was, they fired him, hired him. As a PR person, how do you even dream about getting the New York Mets any press in a city that's just that's in love with the New York Yankees? Well. That's one of the reasons I was hired, you know, because it was a Yankee town. They wanted to get a, a, a PR person with an offbeat personality. That's a boy with, with the FDU stories. We had a, you know, one arm fencer, priest played hockey, 43 year old freshman football player, uh, uh, fencer with one arm. Um, an Arab and Israeli goalie on the same team, soccer team. So they wanted somebody who could pitch human interest stories. So when I got to the Mets in 1980, I did stories on Lee Mazzilli as a speed skater. Doug Flynn played with the Oak Ridge Boy. Craig Swan, one of our pitchers, was a uh, was it was a trainer. Uh, was it with a Rolfer? So until we got good in '83, those are the kind of stories I was pitching. My, my boss didn't expect me to get on the back page, but I wanted to do my job and keep going. I've always my motto has been: you can't be God and where are the state. You have to do your job professionally and do the best you can. That's what I tried to do at least until 1983 when, uh, you know, we traded for Keith Hernandez and, and Daryl Strawberry came up. Right, that's when the team just just totally was a metamorphosis. The team became right. contested. Right. I, I remember every every New York Mets fan remembers that day when you got Keith Hernandez and the day of Piazza and Carter. Those are like, those right. things just stand out in your mind because the team right. no really turned. So from the business perspective of it, you know, business is a very, very crowded place, whatever market you're in, whatever industry you're in. As a PR guy who had a job that was extremely difficult is to take a team that was 
literally at times the laughing stock, right? It was the De Roulette sisters who were running the team at one point, uh, uh, J- Mrs. Joan Payson's kids, who didn't know much about baseball. Uh, the sports writers didn't have a love affair with the Mets. In fact, they were pretty uh, antagonistic towards the Mets uh, at the time. Uh, what, what do you yeah, do? I was in Yankee Town. It was from 80, 81, 82, until mid-83. Even 83, we didn't wind up good. But in 83, the team started to take shape. Uh, you know, we got Keith, we got Darling. Uh, we, uh, we got Keith, we got uh, Daryl. the end of the year, Ron Darling came up. We traded for Sid Hernandez. And to me, one of the biggest changes was in, after the World Season 83, we, had, we hired David Johnson as the manager. David Johnson was the perfect, perfect guy for that team. He, uh, he, he, he was a, a confident guy. He was not a breaker, but he didn't need a job. He was a real estate guy, flew his own plane, got his degree in mathematics from Texas A&M. And we, at the press conference, he said to Frank Cash, the GM at the time, why did it take you so long to hire me? And so Davey was the guy who molded everything together, and he exuded confidence with the players picked up on. So as a PR guy, your job is to do what for your team? To do what now? What is your job as a PR person for the what, – what, what is your job description? You're supposed to do what? How do you know you had a good day – as a PR person, well, my, is to be a li- liaison between the media and the players. And, uh, we do mundane things. Like do a yearbook, do press notes, do a press guide, uh, be available during the game to update, uh, you know, injuries and stuff. See, well, if I have a good job. If I have, see, to be a good PR guy, you have really three separate masters. Number one is ownership, the front office. Number two is the players. Number three is the media. You have to have credibility with all three. Once you lose credibility with the media, you're a dead person. And the players, if they don't think you have your backs, you're a dead person. If the ownership doesn't think you have their backs, you're a dead person. So it's, it's quite a balance you have to be able to, to cater to all three masters. That's what I try to do uh, in my allegiance was, was to, to ownership. But I let the players know you know I was there for my My motto going in the locker room was, to treat the number 25 guy, 25th guy, like the first guy on the team. And to take care, if you work for the New York Times or the, the St. Carol News or the New York Star Ledger, I would take care of you. I try to treat everybody the same. And that's how I existed in the locker room for 38 years. Yeah, and, you know, you're getting these guys, and, you know, people, you know, I lose focus, that even though they're great and there's this, many of these guys, most of them coming up, they're early 20s, they're kids. They're kids coming in from small town USA, uh, Midwest, or coming into the to 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 really uh, the media capital of the world, uh, New York, and the only one they turn to and help in for help in, in navigating this this the this really tremendous tremendous marketplace is a guy like you. Well, I, I try to let the players know, you know, I, I didn't want to be a suit, you know, I didn't want to be a front office suit. I didn't always go to your lockers when I needed something. Hey, how's stuff with your family? Everything good? You need tickets to something? Your kids is good? Good? You need reservations and a place to eat? I just try to be. I wasn't always asking, asking, asking. So they they saw me coming, they would run the other way. So I just try to be there. I remember when uh, David Wright came up in 2004. You know, Shannon Ford helped David find a place to live. Uh, Gave recommendations of where to eat give recommendations, uh, you know, where if you want to get a good movie. And that's how you, that's how you win the players over. Let, let them know that you're just not there. 
to ask and ask them to do stuff. You're there to help them and help them get adjusted to a new city. So, you know, um, one thing that the Mets did amazingly well, no pun, pun intended, because the Mets, amazing Mets, is uh, in 2001, uh, 9-11, right. uh, Bobby V, Bobby Valentine, who was the manager at the Mets, he just, he was like, I remember, a force of nature, and he commandeered that, I think it was uh, Shea Stadium at the time, the whole parking lot, and turned it in, and uh, turned it into a relief center. You know, everybody says to me, well, what's the highlight of your career? I say, 86, we got a ring, which is great. But for me, being associated with a 2001 team, we just had in the weekend, 9-11 weekend, the 20th anniversary of the weekend. And to a man, Bobby Valentine, uh, Al Leiter, John Franklin, Robin Petura, Todd Seal, Vance Wilson, Joe Kiwi, Amanda Benitez, Edgardo Alfonso, uh, Steve Traxel, uh, you know, Jay Payton, Glendon Rush, they did what they had to do. They, they, they went out to the community. They, uh, you know, they went to firehouses, went to the police stations. We visited people in hospitals, and we helped. Basically, you know, John puts Frank puts his best. We put like a small band aid on a big wound. We helped this the city heal, which was really important. I'm just really thankful that I was just being a small part of that. And, and uh, Bobby Valentine had the players driving forklifts and, and getting supplies. I remember reading the papers at the time. It, w- it was quite amazing, and everyone pitched in. It was uh, yeah. He we, we the area originally the area Shea said is supposed to be a morgue where you're supposed to drop bodies off, but yeah. unfortunately there were no bodies. So it became a recovery area, and people would drop off trucks and other things to get supplies down at any place from. From you know, from shoes to T-shirts to toothpaste to uh, mouthwash to whatever, where they would go down there. It was really, and a woman named Sue Lucci worked with Bobby. She was the head on our stadium operations. They were night and day. They're out there like 24 hours a day for a good two, three weeks to get all the supplies down to Ground Zero. Yeah, and this was all volunteer. This was all homegrown. No one told them volunteer, how to do this. People, none of the players said no. No one said no to anything. Yeah, you know, uh, I. I you know, so many times people think of ball players as, as uh, you know, which they are phenomenally great athletes. But as people, eh, they don't really care about the paycheck or something. But I remember during 9-11 and afterwards, uh, the New York Mets really showed how much they cared about the city and the people in the city. Yeah. And it was just a great, you know, our, th- that team rose up to, to, to meet the challenges of the times. I mean, you know, it really was led by... You know, John Franco, who is a New Yorker, you know, Al Leiter is from New Jersey. Bobby V is from Connecticut. So all these guys took the attacks personally and they reacted the same. And the, uh, and the, uh, and the teammates, uh, you know, picked up the slack. And, and, and it was really, you know, Mike's home run was great. It was unified the city. But with, uh, what we did in 9-11 was much more than Mike's home run. It was just a joint effort by everybody on the team to, uh, you know, to, to try and make people happy, put a smile on people's faces again. Jay, for those who don't know Mets history, and uh, when you mentioned uh, Mike's home run, that was Mike Piazza. Give just give us more context, so so people who were not born <laughs> uh, were not born around then, or have no idea what Mike Piazza is sure. and what he did. How would that changed so much? And that's a turning so point. So this is what the deal was. Uh, after we we after the attacks, we played three games in Pittsburgh. And then it was a big decision whether when it was the time to play New York again. It was decided we would play September 21st against the Braves. 
And, um, you know, it, it was a lot of, a lot of people felt was a time we didn't know could be the state to be subject to an attack again, but it was decided by the mayor Giuliani and our, and our ownership. To do, it was a time to play. So we played, the crowd was extremely quiet. When it's the eighth inning, we're, we were losing uh, three to two, uh, two to one rather. Um, Armando uh, uh, Edgar Alfonso walks. Uh, Steve Carsey is pitching for the Braves. He's from Queens, right here with the high school here. Um, I'm sitting in the in the press box next to Shannon, and I and I said to her, "Listen, I don't know what's going to happen, but I just got the feeling that Mike is going to do something big." I don't want to predict a home run. Sure enough, he had a home run over the left field fence. And for the first time in 10 days, you know, people laughed. There were firemen's kids laughing, policemen's kids laughing. And it was a home run that really helped beautify the city. I mean, it was, you know, Mike, Mike has hit well over four on home runs. And, you know, he values that home runs probably the best home run he's ever hit for what it meant. I mean, that, that home run is on his Hall of Fame plaque at Cooperstown. So that should tell you how important it was to him. Yeah. So it was just yeah. a tremendous, tremendous night, you know. And uh, you know, to the to the Braves, I'm, Chipper Jones has been quoted saying, "I, I, we were destined to lose that game, and I hate to lose. Maybe it's important we lose for the people in New York." So mm. that was a night I'll never remember. And we just, uh, you know, we lived that this weekend. We had the 20th anniversary of the. Uh, of, of, of 9-11, yeah. which we had 13 guys from the 2001 team here, and we had a great team, a great time. Yeah, just just to, just to fill in people what it was like in New York, especially when you're talking about that uh, September 21st game when Mike Piazza hit that home run. For ten, The attack just happened. It was 10 days later. I just remember the smell. The smell in the city was a smell that you just can't yes. forget. Yeah. yeah, it was death. It was it was just horrendous. It was just horrendous. It was smoldering. The uh, World Trade Center site was smoldering for weeks. Uh, right. There was still, I remember, everywhere you walked, there were signs uh, of pictures of people. Do you know where this we person is? We went down here is? about three days after the attacks. It was nothing like I've ever seen, helps you ever see again. It was buildings, flames, and the firemen were sitting there, like, with dirt all over their faces, all over their faces, you know, dead tired, but they were committed to keep looking to find any of their friends. And unfortunately, none were found. Yeah, yeah. So so when 10 days later, uh, the city still smells terribly. Uh, the, the, the stench of death is everywhere. You saw almost everywhere, folks, no matter where you walked, there were posters and signs that people made and went to Staples and put a picture. Did you see so-and-so? Did you see so-and-so? I remember going to Staples at the time. I was buying a, a, an outdoor table for something. And I remember this was in, um, in uh, Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, and a large fireman community. There must have been around 15 or so firemen there. And all of those in Staples on the bulletin board were those firemen and maybe 20 or 30 other people that came from Bay Ridge that were still missing. Because we didn't know. No one knew, uh, you know, that yeah, uh, no one survived. So, so uh, and, to, and to have... I think it was a sellout crowd, right? Was that 50-plus thousand people? No, it wasn't. It wasn't. We had about 37, 38,000. Well, today it would be a sellout crowd in City Field, right? Back in the day, Shea Stadium was 50-something thousand, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you had... First of all, that was a, that was a nightmare just thinking about because I remember the first thing I was thinking about, someone goes, uh, is anyone thinking about going to the game? I said, why? Would you ever want to congregate in that area? Well, yeah, you know, no. There's a lot of discussion about whether it was too early to play. 
Yeah, too early to play, and 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 that home run, uh, it, it just gave the city a you know it, it was just a reason like okay we're out of mourning at one point, not forgetting, but it seemed that the city crossed a big chasm, and say we could repair ourselves, we can get better, and right, and, and no you question. yeah and, and I think you had in the stands you had uh, you mentioned uh, children uh, who lost their parents in nine right. eleven. And so, firemen's kids, policemen's kids, court responders' kids, uh, EMS kids. So it was, uh, it was a very historic night. Yeah, amazing. And now, now just you know, the 20th anniversary. It still uh, brings back those memories. But right, uh, it it was just, uh, folks. If if uh, you know, hopefully, we should never ever relive something like that. But I it, hope not, sir. I hope not. It was it was so not only sad, but it was just extremely depressing when you saw all these people. But. Uh, the Mets came through in, in a lot of ways, you know, as an organization, right. as an organization. What was were you, that we were all proud to be part of it, I can tell you that. Yeah, it was just, and, and Giuliani was, a Mayor Giuliani was a uh, big Yankee fan, but uh, he was wearing well, that time with no Mets, yeah, right. he was just a fan of New York. I think when he came, he wore a Met cap, right? Was he wearing a Met? Uh, I think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, which is a big thing, folks, for someone, a Yankee fan, to wear a Met, a Met cap. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. Uh, so... Jay, throughout the years, and, and you know, reading the book and, and just uh, speaking to people who know of you, the thing which comes out over and over, and I'm, I'm an embarrassed, I hope I don't embarrass you by saying this because it's true, is how much you are loved by so many of the players and so much of, of your peers. Uh, what, what, what do you, why do you think, what, what magic do you have that... No magic, it's just simple equation. I just try to people... Treat them like I would want to be treated. I never call them up to the stars. I try to treat the, the, the 25th guy the same as the number one guy. I let these guys know I cared about everybody. And I hopefully that might have gotten through. You know, I still keep in contact in my new job as the alumni director with a lot of these guys I work with. And I think that they knew, they knew I cared about them as people, not just players. And I was there for them when they had a problem. I was there for them when I could help. And it wasn't. What are you going to do for Jay? You know, how can I help you? And that's why I think again, I was able to exist for so long in, uh, you know, in this market. And and the and the press, they're not they're not you know you're dealing with the the press in New York is is a very difficult place, especially sports writers. They they can be vicious. They can be vicious. Well, you just got to be honest with them. Really. As long as you don't lie, tell the truth. You know, sometimes you don't have to tell all the truth. Once a PR guy gets caught in a lie, it's it, job is over. With. It's game you over. Lose respect the people you work with, and and it's not. Uh, it's just it's it's probably irredeemable. Now, how how did you deal with the PR change in the past several years while you were still in that position with social media and everything to that effect? Well, that's the biggest change. When I started in eighty, eighty, it was no tweet, no TikTok, no whatever Instagram, and now the players have to be on guard. We used to hold these seminars in the spring. You got to be careful who you walk with, who you talk with, who you're in the bar with, who you put your arm around with. Mm. I mean, now when I first started, every, everything was done by press release. Now, nobody does press release anymore. The agents will release stuff. The players will tweet their own injuries. You know, it's uh, you, the, the player today has got to be so much more aware than when I started because there's no bar- barriers. You know, every. You know, the, the writers, it's everything is immediate. You know, you, 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 if you're in a restaurant, you see with somebody you should be seen with, it'll be on social media right away. You just have to be extremely careful in who you associate with. And when you see these young players come up, 
compared to when they were 40 years ago or 38 years ago when you start in the position. Uh, what difference do you see now with these players? Are they more savvy? Are they smarter? Are they more... Uh, are they well, they're more, more into the social media. Than they, 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 they can handle themselves socially. And they have different interests. And, you know, and it's just... Uh, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I don't think the player basically say, but it's just so much more today's players got to contend with. You know, it could be a disturbance. It could be a distraction. It's got to be, you know, there's no tweet, tweeter, nobody taking your pictures in an elevator when I first started. The guys today have to be so much more aware of where they are. Yeah, and, you know, uh, I, I think which um, you you switched out of the, the way you switched, I don't know, you switched or promoted or moved to a new position or took a new position. Of Two a, years ago, yeah, I'm the director of alumni affairs now. I was, for 38 years, I was the everyday PR guy. Now I just handle the, you know, the uh, I do a podcast, I do a newsletter, and, uh, and I hand their anniversaries. Like we did the 9-11 weekend this weekend. We did Jerry Coos retirement jersey. We did the Hall of Fame with Ron Darley and, and Gardo Alfonso and John Matlack. So those are the kind of things now I'm involved with. And and your position, your position now, I know I know back in the day you were because I was reading your book, you were getting to the stadium at five o'clock in the morning and not leaving yeah, till midnight. I didn't sleep. I used to like to beat the traffic. I live in Jersey, I had to go over two bridges. So I like to get here, you have some emails, read the papers, relax. If I, if I didn't get to the George Washington Bridge at a certain time, it was a two and a half hour ride in the morning. And I didn't want to do that. And you never thought about moving? Well, I have animals and I lived in New Jersey and I like Clifton. It's a small town and, you know, away from stuff. It was worth the commute for me to, to do that, to stay in, in, in New Jersey. So now, now your job is, 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 is a whole lot different. Not as much, right. not as much uh, FaceTime, not as much right. dealing with the iron players. How do you, how did these these um, these alumni that you've really know you knew when they were when they just came up many of them right? Uh, what what's their? I work with most of these guys. You know, the Mets started in '62. I started in '80. So I've worked with the majority of players from '80 on. Right, right. So you had Ed Cranepool. You had original Mets there. Ed Cranepool, Rusty Stahl. Well, yeah, well, I didn't work with that because I didn't think it was '69. You know, Cranepool and. You know, with Swoboda, Jerry Kuzman, Wayne Garrett, Cleon Jones, are all good friends of mine now. Wow. So the 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 Mets organization is this like? Is this does this happen in every other a uh, uh, bowl club where the alumni feel so connected to the team that they're willing to go out of their way and help out in any way and stay part of the organization? That's what I'm trying to do. See, we weren't that great before. Now that's what I'm trying to reach out to these guys and make them that they're part of the Mets family and. You know, wish them a happy birthday. Uh, just call, say hello, just and be there for them. If they can do something, leave them tickets in the game in another part of the country. Just do these little things to make them seem like, you know, that we, that we give a damn. Before that, that wasn't being done? It was, but not to the extent that we're doing now. So, you know, some, some ball clubs, they're, they, once they're in the organization, they stay in the organization forever. I'm not going to name uh, clubs because you probably know who they are and, and can tell me better. Uh, why weren't the Mets focused on that for so long? I, I don't know. Maybe we had other priorities. Uh, we did it to an extent, but, you know, it, I can't give you an answer to that, to be honest with you. But, you know, when, when, when uh, 
with Jeff Wilpon, one of the previous owners, he asked me if I wanted to switch jobs in 2018. He said, we got to really up our alumni connection. I said, Jeff, I'll give it a try. And at first I was hesitant about doing it because I missed, would miss, I missed the day-to-day stuff with the media and the, the players and travel. But you know what? After I did it for a couple of months, I realized I could be a good, big help and it was a good calling. And I'm happy I made the switch. So you have these alumni, these players, they, they participate in a whole bunch of goodwill for the team and uh, do a lot of good? We, we've started since the COVID, we do uh, like a couple of times a month, uh, Zoom calls to assisted living places to talk baseball when people oh. can't get out. You know, Ron Saboa, Daryl Strorick, Doc Gooden, Bobby Valentine, Art Chamsky, Turk Wendell, uh, you know, Willie Rand or Terry Collins have all done these calls. We have only over 40 calls we've done and we bring, bring like a little joy and you know, happiness to people who really can't get out now, who oh. couldn't get out. And, and the, the players are not paid for this? No, no, sir. Purely no. volunteer? Pure, purely volunteer. We have about seven, five club ambassadors who work for the team and do other, we get paid appearances like, uh, you know, Mike Piazza, um, you know, Todd Zeal, Tim, Tim uh, Tuffle, Mookie Wilson, they're, they're ambassadors. But these guys, you call them up, you say, look, we're doing this assisted living call on Zoom right. to make some uh, senior a, a lot happier. And COVID was terrible on a lot of a lot of people, isolated for so long from the family, friends, and very depressing. And they, right. would, they would make these calls. And it, 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 how were these seniors taking these calls? It must have been amazing. It was great. We, they, we sent them shirts from our community outreach department, and they prepare and they research. And they, you know, they research the, the, the participant. And uh, like the next month or so, we're doing something with Craig Swan, who pitched with us in the 1980s, and Neil Allen, who was you know, traded to the Cardinals with Keith Hernandez. So, yeah, they research it. They're really knowledgeable people, and they have a good time doing it, and they get to talk, you know, baseball with a professional baseball player for an hour. Wow. My mother would have loved that, that's for sure. That was, her, her favorite player was yeah. Gil, Gil Hodges, Brooklyn Dodgers. Yeah, good man. Uh, Should be in the Hall of Fame too. Yeah, Brooklyn Dodgers, and he lived in Brooklyn on Bedford Avenue. Right. And uh, we we um, when he became a new, he died young at forty something. Forty seven had a heart attack on the golf course. Golf course, yeah, I remember that day. Yeah. It was terrible. What a depressing, depressing day. You know, he seems so much older, but uh, you know, as a kid, but uh, he was an amazing guy. So, so when would you plan these things? Are these are your ideas. Are these are these Zoom calls. Well, you know, I work in conjunction with the community outreach department. They get to send. The, the, the centers and the places, and I provide the players, so we work together. Right. So looking back at your life, man, you had not the ideal job, I think the greatest job possible. You you got, I think, baseball players have a finite career. You've had an extremely long career. Baseball players don't have 40-plus year careers. You've been around the game. You've been uh, as, as close to being uh, uh, a part of it. I think they even voted you. I remember reading, they voted you a share of the World Series. Uh, 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 in 1986, money. yeah. Keith Hernandez told me one day, he said, uh, you know, the players think a lot of what you're doing, you vote your share. And, and it was, you know, it was $93, $93,000. At that time, it was a lot of money. I was very honored. And I never did anything in my life for money. At that time, when I got the share, I didn't even know what a share was, to be honest with you. Really? So I was very fortunate to get it, and I was accepted it with a lot of thanks and gratitude. Wow. So so looking back on your life, looking at all, all the good that you did, being with the Mets, having your ideal job, uh, overcoming a disability, growing up, being made fun of, this and that, 
when you look back, what, what is your most, what is, what is the happiest, what, what is an accomplishment that you could say, you know what, I, I think I did good? I'll go back, go back to uh, 9-11, you know, the, the team is a great team, great players, and we felt we made a difference in the community. And it was, being a part of that was probably even more important to me than the, the ring I got in 1986. And we just felt we made a difference and we impacted the city and uh, just to be a part of that team was something I'll treasure. Wow. Well, that outstanding. And then, you know, folks, that's a big deal because uh, the 86 team was an amazing team and, and won the World Series. And uh, for you to say that the, uh, you know, 9 11 uh, players who did so much for the city and cared so much. Yeah, just to be part of that thing was great. Wow, great. Um, all right. Um, I'm going to give you the last word, Jay. Uh, I, I, you know, I think you're, you're, a, you're a, as my grandmother would say, you're a mensch. You're a good human well, being. You. You're, you're an excellent human being. That's a great compliment. Thank you. Yeah, it really is. You, you've done so much good. Uh, you never, and, and you know what thing I liked about it is, about, it, about uh, what you've done, is you, it was never about you. I try never make it about me. In my position, I want to be the background. I'm here to help it. Just try to do some good. Yeah, and I think you've done tremendous good. Well, I'm going I'm, I'm to give. I'm going to give you the last word. I want you just to, to, to make my listeners just feel great. Well, listen, I've had a, a, I've had a great life. I've been fortunate enough. I never considered what I'm doing working. Uh, I met a lot of great people. Had some fun. A lot of great trips. A lot of great travel. And you know, I think we did some good along the way. I was blessed to have. Uh, Great people to work with, like Shannon Ford and Ethan Wilson, um, for a number of years, and just that I was very fortunate. I was a sports fan growing up. Couldn't didn't have the ability to play. I was fortunate to come carve out a life for myself in sports for over forty plus years, and uh, you know I was very fortunate that that happened to me. So uh, you know I'm uh, I'm really happy with the life I'm leading. Hopefully, I got a couple more years left to do what I'm doing and. Well, hopefully the Mets can get a world championship pretty soon. Yeah, I hope I hope this year. I hope this year, especially uh, how they've been playing. Uh, I hope just uh, you know new ownership also, right, uh, right, which is a really big deal. How how long did the Will Ponds own the Mets for? Will Ponds and uh, they and so from nineteen eighty till last year. Wow, so forty something years. It's crazy. Yeah. It's 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 crazy. And then Steve Cohen now hedge fund manager taking over the right, team. Right, right. Uh, uh, I'm not going to ask you to say anything about your boss, but. Do you see no. a change? Do you see a change in, in the way? No, been, the Will Ponds were committed to winning. The Steve's committed to winning. And I think we're headed in the right track. And, and everything looks great. Well, fantastic. And where could uh, your podcast, what's the name of the podcast? The Amazing Mets Alumni Podcast. And how often do you? Amazing Mets Alumni Podcast. How often do you put out a podcast? Uh, once every two weeks. And how's that going for you? I think it's going all right. I enjoy speaking to old friends. And so it's, I think it's good. So it's you, people enjoy it. you and a Met alumni sitting down and just shooting the breeze. Just shooting the breeze. Who have you had on the show so far? Oh, everybody. Piazza, Mookie, uh, uh, Daryl, um, uh, uh, Bobby Valentine, Terry Collins, uh, you know, Howard Johnson, um, Keith Hernandez, Ron Darley, but most everybody, most every name in Met history I've had on. Really? Well, who's going to say no to you, right? So you can get well, hopefully not. you can get any guest you want from the Mets. That's that's unbelievable. Jay, yeah. I want to, the name of the book, folks, is Mr. Met: How a Sports right. Mad Kid from Jersey Became Like Family to Generations of Big Leaguers. I want to tell you, even if you're not a Met fan or from New York, definitely get the book. 
because well, I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, it, it you know it's it's a quick read. It's a couple hundred pages. It goes through a lot of uh, not only Met history, but it, it, Jay carving out a piece of the, the media in a town. And I think it's a good business book per se because how you kept coming up with angles in a marketplace which was well, definitely not a New York market, a Met marketplace. Well, it was a, I appreciate your kind words. It was a, oh, a, you know, well-deserved, well-deserved. Jay Horowitz, thank you so much, man. I greatly okay. appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Charles Mizrahi Show. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also see the video of the interview on the Charles Mizrahi Show channel on YouTube.